Well, let's open with prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you that we could be here today and I pray that you would uh, bless this time and that you would help us to, uh, to grow in the faith and that you would help us to understand more about who you are and what you've done. Uh, and, uh, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to know your love, forgiveness, and salvation in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the devotions, did, did you look at that at all? Did that... More than I thought it would be. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, I liked it a lot. You know, there's, a, there's constantly a debate um, in terms of how much, how much teaching up do you need before you can join a church? Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, I, I'm always torn on that because on the one hand, you know, I want to get you connected. I want to get you in, you know, and, yeah. you know, and, and on the other hand, there, there is no end. Right. Well, then you just take it as you can take it, you know, you take a break from it if you need to, not like right. walk away from it, but just not constant every day. Right. Every, you know, that's the way I look at it. Yeah. You know, and, and so, you know, some people, you know, when I talk with them about, you know, well, what are you doing here? You know, they're like, well, I have this, you know, three month process and everything. I'm like, what does that look like? You know, everybody I, has to go at their own pace, I would think. Yeah. You know, and, and, and how does that all work? And, you know, and, and I'm not saying it's bad, No. but I think that that would be hard and I could see where that would be a stumbling block for some people. And overwhelming. Yeah. And, and on the other hand, I also feel uh, that the material is like really important so how do you get that into people's hands in a way that they can dig into it and they can process it and think about it? And, and for me, this is, this is the best thing that I've come up with so far, which doesn't mean that it's the best thing. It's just the best thing that I've, yeah. I've come up with. And, and I, what I like is that uh, whether you realized it or not, I, uh, you know, the, the bits and pieces in there, a lot of them come directly from the catechism. You know, and uh, and so it's just very reflective of, you know, who we are as Lutheran Christians, but it also puts it in a format that I think is fairly practical, and hopefully accessible. So, um, I, I'm always open to uh, to feedback about it, and you know, if if there's something that raises a concern or whatever, please let me know. Um, but uh, for the most part, I mean. My, my first thing would be, you know, does, does the layout make sense? You know, mm-hmm. you're, you're able to work through it. Okay. Any questions about any of the, uh, the things that you read, uh, Luke and uh, catechism stuff? Not really. There was one part I was just reading this morning where they kept calling the church she. Yeah. That was yeah interesting i've never heard that before yeah um you know so when when you go back uh to you know latin and, and uh you know in a lot of other languages everything has a gender oh okay you know so even like when i took spanish i found this very confusing you know you know um the uh you know the the, the cup was you know feminine or you know and oh. like what I, I don't understand um, and, and it doesn't really come across too much in English, although there are bits and pieces of it. I mean, we, we talk about man in a, a broad sense. That means humanity or yeah, even yeah. mankind. 
you know, um, yeah. but uh, um, from very early on, the church was um, kind of given this feminine uh, uh, pronoun, and there are a couple reasons for it. Uh, one of them is that the Bible describes the church as the bride of Christ. Okay. So, okay, he's the groom. Yeah. She's the bride. And another uh, part of that imagery deals with uh, uh, church as mother. Okay. That, the, you know, the church... I've never heard that one. Yeah. I, and it's one that I, I kind of resonate with. I kind of like that image that, you know, the church is like a mom raising yeah. the kids, you know, and, and trying to show the right way, but also nurturing and tending and... Disciplining. And, and sometimes <laughs> disciplining, yeah. You know, and, and that that's all part of this this life as as church. So that's why the uh, she. Yeah. yeah, that's the first time I ever saw that. Yeah. Know. Anything else? Couple things. Okay. I'm discussing this with some other friends. I have Bible study on Thursday morning. Okay. And when I said, "Oh, Luke," the first part of that is the. Uh, book of Mary okay and I'd never heard that before and I so we talked about it and it, he said well how would they know what happened at the nativity if it weren't for Mary telling them yep and I thought well okay yeah <laughs> but I thought it was interesting yeah absolutely and um, all it, the prayers and the angels and all that yep so when you look at, at like the first two, three verses of the Gospel of Luke, um, first of all, Luke addresses the, the book to this guy named Theophilus, um, which we have no idea who that is. Um, in fact, we think it might be code, uh, because if you split it apart, uh, Theo means God, and Philos is a, a friend or one who loves as a friend, you know, so a friend of God. You know, so is this kind of this general, you know, code word for any Christian, or is it a uh, is it a specific person? Because it could very easily be a name too. Um, and uh, and he says, I went through and I I I researched this, and I think that this is something. It's definitely something that I didn't get when I was a kid. That these um, gospels, including Luke, these biographies of Jesus' life, they're primary source historical documents. You know, this this is like reading, you know, Caesar's diary, in a sense. You know, um, you know, it, it's it's somebody's reflection of things that they experienced, and and Luke is flat out, you know, yeah, um, I I interview people, and so yeah, you know, to say he talked with Mary, makes a lot of sense, because we know that Mary outlived Jesus. She was there at the cross when he was crucified. Um, you know, and he ascends into heaven shortly thereafter. And we have historical um, uh, accounts that, that say that, you know, John did take her in uh, and took care of her as his mother. And that at some point they even uh, moved to Ephesus together. And, uh, and he took care of her for the rest of her life. And, and so, you know, if this is all, if these books are being written, as I think that they are, by about 50 AD, 
boy, you know, it would make a lot of sense that, you know, a guy like Luke who says, I need to understand a little bit more about how Jesus was born, says, hey, wait a minute, that's his mom. I'm going to sit down and have a talk. You know, and then puts those details into uh, into writing. So that's one. You said you had a couple. The other one it was about the scripture about he knew, he knew me before I was born. Yeah. That's a paraphrase, obviously. Yeah. And that conjures up all kinds of questions. Um, and then I got into reading about the two great unknowns. Okay. And the one unknown is heaven or the afterlife. Okay. But the other one is the before life. And I thought, whoa, wait a minute, am I, what am I reading here? You know, I'm not sure what all this means. Yeah. So I quit. <laughs> <laughs> There's wisdom in that sometimes. <laughs> um, but the scripture says he, he knew me before I was born. Yeah. Or whatever. Before he formed me in the womb, he knew me. And it's even, it's even a little bit cooler than that um, in a sense that... Uh, that's um, it's from Jeremiah um, so it's written in Hebrew and uh, reading it through in, in the original it's more like before you formed me in the womb you know me like this present tense you know now we're getting into time and yeah oh and, and there's this weirdness you know what do you do with a God who's eternal who's in all times and all places at once. I'm like, wait, what? And there's actually a passage in John that kind of reflects this, where um, the, uh, the, the people are getting uptight with Jesus, you know, because he's talking about Abraham. And, you know, it says that Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. And he's like, they're like, you're not even 50 years old. And Abraham died 2,000 years ago or whatever. I, you know, I don't, don't even know what the time frame was. Um, and uh, and you go, you've seen Abraham? Like, you know, knock it off, you know. And, uh, and he says, you know, before Abraham was, I am. It's like, oh, come on. <laughs> yeah, okay. So this is not necessarily a pre-life. It's a all time, all... I think so, yeah. That he, he's, he experiences all of it in a, like an eternal now. Which, it's just, I, I don't know. Yeah. And some of this is a little bit um, hypothetical because it's not... Like he, he, you know, he comes out and he really explains this or anything. We're drawing from what we're reading, you know. So the soul mm -hmm. is born at conception? I think so. I think so. It's not one of these. No. No, um, no that's what the Mormons teach, that, you know, oh, that, really? that we're like spirits up in heaven. And, uh, and that the whole goal is then to be born... And then to live such a good life that you can become a god. Oh. And um, 
uh, and so this is one of the reasons, you know, the, the multiple wives and having lots and lots of kids, you know, they're rescuing these babies that are kind of in limbo that need to be born. That's part of their, uh, part of their doctrine. But yeah, no, I would say that the, uh, you know, the soul is part of who we are. And, um, and so when, when we're conceived, you know, that's part of what's developing within us. Even if we can't see it and touch it and quantify it. Okay. So. The last thing I was going to ask you about, maybe, maybe we'll get into it. The history of marriage. Okay. And it talks about, obviously, we read in Scripture the, this time about man and wife and so forth. And they asked him about Abraham had more than one wife. And he said, nah, yeah, but he was wrong. <laughs> mm -hmm. But marriage, obviously, was going on before the church. Yes. And... But marriage is is kind of a is kind of owned by the church. I mean, it's 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 not a sacrament, which I wonder right. why. But you can get married at the local judge, right? And I'm wondering what came first. And all that. Why, why is marriage in a church important? Obviously, it's blessed by God, but there is a. But was it always that way? So, I mean, the first recorded marriage that we have in the scripture is Adam and Eve. There's nobody else around, <laughs> right? You know, and so it's it's not like you know they went to church, you know. God gives Eve to Adam and, you know, and there's this connection between the two and, and their husband and wife. They have kids and so on and so forth. And, and you know, people are like, well, who, whose kids did they? They married their siblings, which to us is like really weird. And, but probably to them it wasn't. And so, um, and uh, uh, over time, uh, you, you start to have traditions that build up around some of this. When you look at what the Bible actually says about what it takes to be married, it's pretty broad. You know, really the idea is you're making an oath to be together until death. And, you know, and that, you know, you're going to, you know, it doesn't even say that, well, it kind of says that you're going to love each other, but there's like this, this mutual service that that's, that's part of that. You're going to take care of each other, you know, and, and sex is part of that. And children is part of that. If God wills it and so on and so forth. Um, but there's not a lot that, you know, like you must go see the priest. There's not a lot of, uh, you must, uh, sign this contract. And so the way we, uh, Lutherans tend to understand marriage is that marriage is, what marriage is is tech, is defined by the scripture. That it's you know, husband and wife united and for life, and you know those kinds of things. 
Um, when one gets married, we say that that is defined by the state. You know, and so, uh, you know, when uh, a couple, uh, sometimes I've had couples, you know, many times I've had couples come together who, you know, they want to get married, but they're living together. And, and uh, I'm like, okay, but we, we have an issue here that we need to discuss, you know. You know we don't want you uh, living together. You know, you're here to seek God's blessing, but you're basically saying, but we're going to do it our way. You know, that's not the way that, you know, I, I could tell you that with my parents, if I had said, you know, I want your blessing, but I'm going to do whatever the heck I want, they'd have been like, yeah, out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so they come to church because they want God's blessing on their marriage, um, and, and so I say, well, why don't you just go to the justice of the peace and get married? You know, we can do the fancy ceremony with the prayers and all of that afterwards. And I've had some people who have done that, and I'm, you know, I think that's pretty cool. And you know, and others who have made other commitments, you know, to say, all right, we set up another room. You know, you know, we're gonna, you know, okay, all right, you know, I'll trust you on that one, and you know, see how. How you do, right? <laughs> I mean, because ultimately, you can't control people. People do what people do. And uh, um, so, for the state of Ohio, I can tell you that uh, you are married when you stand before a judge or a, a, a member of the clergy or anyone who has a license to marry people a license costs about $15, by the way. Um, yes. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, um, and, uh, and, you know, you have to buy a marriage license. Marriage license, I want to say, is about 30 bucks. So I have to have a license. They have to have a license. And, uh, and then they stand in front of me. They make their vows. I sign a legal document that says, I've heard their vows, they are married. When my ink hits that paper. And that has nothing to do with me as a pastor, but in that moment, you know, I'm a representative of the state of Ohio. Which, you know, raises a whole host of other interesting questions in terms of, you know, what does it mean to be a representative of the state, you know, in this task? And, you know, and, uh, and there are ethical questions that get involved with that too that um, we haven't wrestled much with over the years, but I think that we probably will have to. One man, one woman. When did that start, though? I mean, obviously Abraham had several wives. He technically, he had one wife and a concubine. Okay. Um, but um, Jesus was the one who really makes that clear. Okay, so... Christianity started one man, one woman? Well, I would say that Adam and Eve started one man, one woman. That that's, okay. that's the model. Okay, but I meant the standard. Mm-hmm. I think the standard was there in the beginning. Okay. Now, just because you have examples in the Bible of people who didn't live up to that standard doesn't mean that wasn't the standard. I mean, you've even got people who do really good things in the Bible who don't live up to the standard. Most of them. Right. All of them. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, Isaac, or, no, 
Jacob. Um, Jacob has two wives and their servants. So in a sense, he's got four wives. He's got he's got kids with four women who live with him, and you know, and they're raising this. I can't even imagine. You know, and uh, um, I mean, it's it's a really sincerely messed up family. Um, but I also take comfort in that that God can you know work in that messed up family. He can work up in my messed up family. You know, and uh, you know, and the, the the whole thing then comes back to what can God do in our lives. But I believe that the standard for one man, one woman was there at the beginning. Okay. And then you know. It gets muddled up. Jesus is the one who finally says, you know, this is not what God intended from the beginning. What you see here, what he intended was one man, one woman for life. And we still mess this up, right? You know, and so we live by grace. And, uh, you know, and, and we try to do what's right the best we can and trust in Jesus' forgiveness. Right. No, but I, that's good for me. I mean, that's I, I I'm really messed, confused about that whole set, the whole thing. You know, and it it'll come in time. Okay. Well, I mean, I more than glad to you know try to chew on that with you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh, but maybe for now, uh, it'd be yeah, best right. to get into some of this. <laughs> All right, so um, the small catechism is, is the book that we're going to use to really kind of dig into what do we believe, okay? You've already read parts of it. Um, I believe I had you read the introduction, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> A little flavor of Martin Luther um, and... Uh, another less than perfect individual, okay? And this is one of the things I think is really important that um, sometimes people treat Luther as though everything that he says is, you know, just inspired by God. Luther was a piece of work. <laughs> I mean, he was foul-mouthed and just argumentative and difficult and... And, you know, and, and some of that's probably what made him successful as a reformer. You know, when they came and they, they excommunicated him, he's like, well, fine. You know, I'm right anyhow. You know, he was not, you know, anyhow. Um, so afterwards, you know, he's looking around. And uh, so the Reformation kicks off in 1517. Um, by 1519, uh, the Lutheran church is sort of recognized as a movement not really approved of but it, it it's 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 operating and and more and more people are are coming into it and uh in the church and state situation is such that you know really the church is funded and you know held up by the state you know and so the the prince or the king would pay for the priests and the churches and the services and, and all of that. And the peasants would come and, you know, and they would participate in that service for free, really. You know, so the, like when they did offerings, uh, they had a very different attitude about it. You know, 
we self-fund our congregations. So like when we do our offerings, there's kind of this sense of, you know, well, we got to keep the lights on and, you know, and all of that. That wasn't there at all. You know, the king took care of all of that. The nobles took care of that. So when common people came in and they would give their offering, you know, this is to help the poor. This is to, you know, all of those kinds of things. It's a, it's a very different model than what we live with. And, and I'm not saying good, bad, indifferent. You know, it's just different. Um, and, uh, um, and so, how did I get to that? Um, oh, and, and so um, the, the princes are looking around at these churches in their territories. And they're like, boy, when the Catholic Church was the church, there was all this stuff that was happening. And they were doing things. And now I, I, I don't see a lot of things. You know, and so they come back to Luther and they're like, hey, would you take a look at this for us? And just kind of evaluate what's going on. And he goes out and he is just angry beyond angry because what he finds going on is nothing. He's like, we've discovered the gospel We've got the good news of Jesus' love and forgiveness. You think that means you just sit around and do nothing now? You know, and, and there's a, a lot of that tone in there. He calls them lazy and, you know, and dogs. And, you know, and part of that is you're, you're talking about the 1500s and, you know, and the culture was very different and very, you know, in your face uh, type of thing. And, uh, and, and so he writes this document to say, look, parish priests, there's a minimum that people need to know. You know and and these, these are kind of the six things that people need to know. And for Luther, Luther would want us to equip parents who then would equip children. Okay? So the, the whole picture is that this is, again, remember that what he wrote is this little bit in the front, right? That this is something that is accessible, that people who are illiterate can remember. They can bring it into their homes. They can teach it to their children. So what are the, what are the basics? What are, what are the little things that, that every Christian should know? And he says, well, we should know the Ten Commandments. And for Luther, we should know the Ten Commandments not necessarily because they are God's law, per se, but they are a reflection of the law that God put into all of creation. So um, they're, they're a summary, in a sense, of God's wisdom about how we should live our lives. And very accessible, very memorable. And, uh, and, and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit more about those commandments here in just a little bit. But a big part of this is I'm a creature who is living in relationship with my creator. And because I am created, there are boundaries. There are issues of design and, and, and the creator's plan and his will. And this is reflected to us in the commandments. Um, but as we study the commandments, we find that we don't live up to them. So what has God done about that? Well, 
that's where the Apostles' Creed comes in, where it speaks about not just a creator, but a savior, and the Holy Spirit who comes to deliver this salvation to us by faith. So you start with the law, you know, in, in this relationship with the creator, but then you get into the salvation story. Well, if you've got a God who loves you and creates you and redeems you and, and even dwells within you, how do you communicate with that God? Well, that's when we turn to the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus teaches us how to pray. And when you look at the Lord's Prayer, you can use it just word for word, right straight through. It's, it's perfectly fine like that. But when you look at it, just like just about everything, and you think about what's being said there, there's a lot being said in just a few words. You know, and so he looks at that. He unpacks it a little bit and, and um, you know, helps us to think about when we say, you know, give us this day our daily bread, what exactly are we asking for? What does it mean that we ask for um, uh, God's name to be hallowed, uh, his kingdom to come, and his will to be done even before we ask for daily bread? You know, it, 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 we start kind of thinking about these things in terms of how is it that we talk back to this creating, redeeming, dwelling with us, God. And the catechisms that had been written in the past, that was really kind of the, the core of, of what you had there. Luther includes three more parts. And what he's doing is he's digging into how does God deliver his forgiveness and salvation to us? And so he talks about baptism, which then leads into confession and absolution, or sometimes it's called the office of the keys. Um, and uh, basically, there was a point where uh, Jesus tells Peter, um, you know, on this rock I will build my church and I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Um, and we understand that to mean the authority to forgive sins. So, you know, this, this, this authority to forgive sins, we, we call it the office of the keys. Um, and, uh, you know, and so from baptism to confession and forgiveness to the Lord's Supper. You know, how does God throughout our lives just continue to deliver that forgiveness to us that becomes central to our relationship with him? And for Luther and for Lutherans, we look at that and say, these are the things that everybody should know about if we're going to walk in a relationship with God. You know, it's six little things. But I can tell you that these six little things uh, can be absolutely huge. And, and great big books can be and have been written about even just little parts of these. So, you know, one of the things I tell my confirmation kids all the time, you know, we have a three-year confirmation process for our, our kids. Start sixth grade through eighth grade. You know, all throughout the school year, they're studying this on Sunday morning. And, uh, uh, and after three years of that, sometimes they're like, you know, hey, I'm done. <laughs> I'm like, oh, sweetheart, no, you're not done. You're just starting. You're, you're, you, you finally know enough to really start to look into this. You're just beginning. You know, and, you know, and I tell them, I said, look, I, I sat where you sat 
you know, I went to a Lutheran school, so I, I started memorizing the catechism when I was like in kindergarten. And I had that all the way through eighth grade. And I, you know, I went to a public high school and we didn't have it there. Um, but uh, I went to a Lutheran college. Right back to that. I went to, you know, four years of seminary. And you better believe that that was part of that. And then I went back and got a doctorate. And that was part of that too. You know, it, it, so I'm like, kids, believe me. There is way more to dig into here. You know, it, it, Luther himself um, w- would say that uh, you know, there are so many things that he had mastered, but he could never master the catechism. I'm like, you wrote the stupid book. <laughs> but what he's saying is that there's just so much going on in what, what God is doing through the commandments and the creed and the, the Lord's Prayer and baptism, that it's just something that is just always at work in us, you know, and always worth thinking about and pondering. So when you look at the catechism, when, when, when I was studying this when I was a boy, and really this is something that I've only come to recently, um, uh, I always just kind of saw it as these six chief aspects of our relationship with God. But more and more I've come to see that, um, that this is really an exposition on faith. So I believe that I am created. I can't prove that, you know, one way or the other. You know, um, Descartes, you know, famously said, you know, I think, therefore I am. You know, and so his, his existence was rooted in, you know, the, this idea that I can, you know, conceive of the world, and, you know, intellectually. You know, I, I think that has some problems to it. Um, uh, but to say that I am because somebody from outside created me, I... I can buy that. And if he created me and he created me to live in a relationship with him, then what does that relationship look like? And that's what we have, at least the beginnings of, um, as, as a creature in the commandments. But even there, you know, it's, it's a relationship that is rooted in faith. You know, we don't, we don't walk with God the same way that Adam and Eve did in the garden, as it describes it in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's, it's a relationship of, of, of faith and trust. And so, when you look at the way that Luther uh, explains the commandments, um, he talks about the, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods. And uh, he, he explains that as we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And uh, that idea of trust is central to our relationship with our Creator. And when you look at how he starts to explain the, uh, the creeds, you know, I believe, well, I believe that God made me and all creatures. And then I believe that Jesus Christ is true God, begotten of the Father and true man, born of his, his mother Mary. 
I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength. He, he, he's always, always coming back to faith. The Lord's Prayer becomes the cry of faith. You know, it's all well and good to believe something's there, but, you know, boy, how do you respond to that? Well, this is how you respond. You know, you speak back. And, and you know, I, I think it's just one example here. The Lord's Prayer starts out, Our Father who art in heaven, right? With these words, God tenderly invites us to believe that he is our true Father, that even prayer is an act of faith. And then it continues through as you talk about baptism. That This is something where God gives faith, but it's also received in faith. Absolution, you know, the forgiveness of sins. When we confess, the pastor speaks these words of forgiveness. Did he forgive you? The only way, you know, to know that is through belief. It's, it's, it's trusting a promise. And then the Lord's Supper, again, you know, Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. I look and I'm like, that looks like bread, that looks like wine. He says, this is given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. How do you receive that? It would have to be by faith. So when you, when you look at the things that we're talking about, faith is central to all of it. And, and I say that because I think that Lutherans in particular have been rather intellectual in our faith and in our relationship with God. And we make it sound like it's more about knowledge. You have to know these six things in order to be a member of this church. No, no, we're going to walk by faith together. And these are six items that we're trusting God together with. Does that, does that make sense? How do you find faith? Faith is a gift. You know, and, and it, um, we'll talk about it more uh, Hopefully, hopefully more succinctly when we get into the creed and we talk about the Holy Spirit. But when Luther starts talking about the Holy Spirit, he says, you know, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But the Holy Spirit calls, gathers, enlightens. And so this believing, it's something that is a gift that God gives us. And it's work that, that, that God does in us as we hear his word. Okay, think about the devotions that I've got you guys doing. I'm a little bit sneaky. You know, I, I'm, I'm putting you where, you know, yeah. faith is created. Um, and, you know, and so we hear that and then we, we, we pray and then we respond. You know, and, and the whole idea is that, you know, we're... We're, we're being formed by God to receive his promises and to trust him. Now, I do think that sometimes there's this image of, you know, I have faith and therefore I trust everything perfectly. No, that is not at all how this works. Faith is something that is sometimes high and sometimes low. And a really good example of this is Thomas, the apostle. You know, Thomas is probably best known as doubting. 
Thomas. Because after Jesus rose from the dead, he was like, yeah, I don't believe it. Unless I stick my fingers in the holes in his hand and stick my hand into the spear hole in his side, I'm not going to believe it. Did he do that? Yes. Jesus appeared and says, hey, Tom, come here. Put your hands here. Stick your hand into my side. Stop being unbelieving and believe. Now, that's the thing he's remembered for. But earlier in the Gospel of John, there's a period where Jesus is being threatened by uh, the um, religious leaders of the time. And he is making a very dangerous decision to go uh, see his friend who has just recently died. And Thomas says, let's go that we might die with him too. That's a pretty courageous statement. You know, he's walking into danger and we're going to go with him too, even if it means that we're going to be killed in the process. And after uh, Jesus was raised from the dead, Thomas becomes this missionary who goes all the way over to the far side of India and carries the gospel all the way across there and he dies a martyr's death. On, on the coast of the, the sea there, you know, refusing to turn away from this message that Jesus has risen from the dead. So is Thomas an example of bad faith? Or is he an example of a life that sometimes the faith is strong and sometimes it stinks and sometimes it's somewhere in between? And I think that that's a more accurate example of, of the real experience of faith that sometimes we go through and we have questions and we wonder and we still continue to take the steps forward because we're trusting Jesus okay I'm going to keep going I don't get it but I'm going to trust you don't let anybody ever tell you that faith is easy faith is what? easy because <laughs> it's not it's not, not, not if we really, you know, cling to these promises and then act on them. It's, it's, it's hard. But that, that is really the theme. And I would say that that's, a, you know, one of the major themes of the scriptures, that this relationship we have with God is rooted in faith. So, you know, Adam and Eve in the garden. Okay, you can eat from everything except for these two trees in the middle of the garden. No explanation, other than in the day that you eat it, you will die. But no explanation. Just trust me. Abraham comes along. Actually, Noah comes along first. And, you know, build a boat. To, you know, all these animals, I'm going to flood the world. You're nuts. But he does it. And in that, he saves the world in a sense. You know, because he, he starts over right there with them. Abraham comes along. He's 75 years old. And uh, his wife would be about 65. And God takes him out and says, look at the stars, Abraham. That's how many kids you're going to have. He is zero at that point. No children. But you're going to have as many as the stars in the sky, as many as the sand on the seashore. You realize I'm old, right? And then he doesn't have them until he's 
90. And Sarah is 80. <laughs> you know, and, and it's just like, wait, what? You know, so, I mean, that, that, that had to be so hard. You know, and, and just examples all throughout the scriptures. That this, you know, it's all about, this relationship we have with God is all about faith. It's all about trusting him. So we start out uh, in the catechism with trusting through um, what God says about our relationship with him as creatures. Okay? And, um, and the very first commandment that he gives is you shall have no other gods. Um, Del, when you learned the commandments, um, do you remember how they were numbered? No. Okay. You mean what came first and so forth? Yeah, like the, for us, the first commandment is you shall have no other gods. Right. And the second is you shall not take or misuse God's name or you shall not take God's name in oh, vain. Okay. Um, there's a little bit of confusion in terms of how, they, how the commandments ought to be numbered. There are two traditions. For me, at the end of the day, I don't care. Because I think that this one is really the commandment, and everything else is kind of a corollary that comes back to this. Okay? But um, and let me just stay. You know, for us, we, we, we understand, and, and the reason for this is the, the, the commandments are recorded in two places. Uh, in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses writes these down. And uh, guess what there's not in, in either of those? Numbers. There is no number to say, this is the first commandment, this is the second commandment. There is a list. And depending upon how you break that list up, there's either 9 or 11 but then we hear later on, there are 10. And it's like, mm. so how does this happen? Um, for us, as I said, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods. The second, you shall not misuse God's name. Third, uh, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. As you get through nine and 10, nine is you shall not covet um, your neighbor's wife, manser, house, you know, and then the 10 is you should not covet, uh, uh, you know, really anything that is your neighbor's. Yeah. Wait a minute. I was going to ask about that. Aren't, right, aren't, aren't, those basic, yeah, aren't those basically the same thing? Yes. Yes, they are. And so when you look at how others break up the commandments, they lump those all together as 10. And commandment number one is you shall have no other gods. Commandment number two is you shall not make for yourself a graven image shouldn't make an idol. But wait. It's the same thing. Aren't those basically the same thing? You know, and so we know there's 10. And, and, you know, what's the right numbering? Um, I like the way we do it. But uh, that's because I grew up with that. And, you know, and, and there is no real you know, hard reason for that. But I do think that this commandment is the heart and the core of all of them. You shall have no other gods. And what does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Now, fear, love, and trust are kind of uh, uh, beautiful, you know, 
summary words. But uh, sometimes that first one makes people uncomfortable. We should fear God. And I've heard people try to explain this away. You know, no, that really doesn't mean fear. It just means respect. I'm not completely comfortable with that. Um, because I think that as sinful people, um, that there is room for fear in, in the proper sense. You know, so in the book of Isaiah, there's a, a, a scene where Isaiah sees God. And his response is, woe is me. In other words, I'm doomed. Why? Because I've seen God. That is not a, you know, oh, hey, I respect you moment. That is terror. That is fear. Okay? And, uh, but I also don't think it's the kind of fear like, like when, when, when you're confronted with, you know, a rabid dog or, or, or something like that. You know, kind of this mindless, you know, terror type of thing. I think probably the closest uh, to this type of fear is um, maybe like, you know, heavy equipment. You can do a lot of real damage with heavy equipment. You know, I think about those guys, you know, the wood chippers and stuff like that. That is dangerous. There needs to be a certain amount of fear in, in, in dealing with that. And even this isn't a perfect image, but I think that it might be the, the closest to recognize that when you're dealing with God, that there is real danger there. It doesn't mean that... that, um, that God's out to get you or anything like that. But it means that, that there are rules in this relationship. It kind of feels like respect too, like you were saying. There is an element of that. kind of goes together if you're in respect of it. Yeah. yeah. But I think that sometimes when we use that word respect, we're just like, yeah, almost like it means like. Yeah, I don't, yeah, when I hear respect, I the other way it has to do with fearing as well yeah well and I, and I think that that's the proper sense of that word yeah. but the way that I see people use that word um, anymore you know if you respect somebody you know you think they're okay I think that you can actually respect people that you think are pretty rotten but you know that they can accomplish some things or you know they're, they're capable of something and you know but you don't necessarily want to party with them <laughs> You know, makes sense. Um, and so there, there is this, this sense of awe and the sense of, you know, God is other. He's, you know, powerful. And, and there are implications, you know, for us. But at the other end of that tension is love. That God is not just to be feared, he's to be loved. Well, why should we love God? Well, the Bible says that the reason that we love God is because he first loved us. And I think that this is a message that, that weaves all throughout the scriptures as well. I've had people say, you know, why did God create the world? Why did he create people if he knew that we were going to sin? And I, I, I think that the reason he did it is because he loved us. 
He loved the idea of a world with us in it. And that was you know, part of what moved him to do this. It's not like he... he sometimes people say, well, he created people because he needed someone to worship him. No, he didn't. He didn't have any need. Everything was perfect. You know, he, he, and he just decides for the sake of love. Um, we, <laughs> I'm going to use a, a phrase that's in the news a lot recently. Quid pro quo. <laughs> we, we, this, is such a, this is so ingrained in who we are. Quid pro quo. Somebody does something for you, oh, well, I better do something back. Oh, somebody gives you a gift? Oh, you better, you know, maybe reciprocate and give them a gift too. You know, I mean, it's just, it's so ingrained in, in, in who we are that it's hard for us to imagine that God would just, oh, I love that, here. And just give the gift, expecting nothing in return. But that relationship is completely based on the fact that he loves us. Loves us enough that he would give his, his son to redeem us and to win us back and, 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 and to save us from our sins. And then, you know, to dwell in us and among us. You know, it's, 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 it's such a beautiful picture. You know, but because of our sin, we've got this fear aspect. But we've experienced this love. And these things are always intention in our lives. Because we always have the sin going on, we always have God's love going on in our lives. And, and so where do we go from there? How do, you, how, how do you move forward? Well, that's faith. That's the trust part. We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Well, fear is... I mean, there's a good, there's a judgment. Yeah. I'm not sure if that judgment hasn't happened already. Oh, go ahead. Well, when you accept Christ, mm -hmm. Christ died for us. It's already happened. Yeah. Um. So, our, and we're justified by faith. So, has that judgment already happened? Yeah. Yeah. So, in, in, in the Gospel of John, um, when Jesus talks about, um, when he's talking with Nicodemus in, in John chapter 3, you know, the world's already condemned. He says, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, I came to save it. Because the, the world is already living in that condemnation. It's already judged. He comes to save. So it's not that, you know, Jesus is going to come back and, oh, let me take a look at your life, Del. Hmm, well, good for you there, not so good there. You know, it's completely and totally, as sinners, condemned. In Christ, innocent. Forgiven, redeemed, saved. Um, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, I think it says, um, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there's an exchange that takes place. Jesus is the one who then 
is condemned, receives our judgment, and we then receive the judgment that he received, he deserves, that he be perfect and forgiven and holy and all of those things. So where was he condemned? At the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, he stands in our place as the chief of sinners. And the judgment that really belonged to us falls on him so that you then stand judged holy, righteous. So we have this part of us that's still sinful, right? We're still sinners. We still do the things we shouldn't do. And that part is constantly fearing. And yet we've got the Holy Spirit at work in us and we are forgiven. And so that part is always loving. And so we always have both of those things going on in us as we follow in faith and we, as we live as God's creatures. Is that? Yeah. Um, so we, so judgment, there should be no fear of judgment. Not for, not for us. And really, honestly, when you think about it, Jesus didn't die for the sins of Christians. He died for the sins of the world. So, in reality, no one should have to fear. But the rub is this, that the only way to receive that forgiveness is through faith. It's like this. Jesus has come and he's given this great, great gift. Faith takes that gift, receives it, opens it, and yes. But if somebody's like and not a good person and they do things but they think that they have faith but they continue to do the wrong like some seriously wrong thing Jacob had four wives so then how <laughs> it's such a radical gift you know, that, um, yeah, there, there are going to be some pretty terrible people, earthly speaking, yeah. in heaven. Okay, okay. And it ain't because, oh, well, look, they, they were pretty bad when they were young, but then when they were older, they no. changed their ways. No. No. Like child molesters. Yeah. Jesus died to pay for their sins. And if they believed in him? What they, if they say they believe in him? Oh, I don't think God can be fooled. Okay. He knows what's in a person's okay. heart. It's not just saying the words. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And when we come to faith in Jesus, should that result in change in how we live? Absolutely. I hope so. We've got these commandments that say, you know, you should have no other gods. And then there's all these other things underneath it, you know, okay, well then how do I live in relationship with God and relationship with my neighbor? And one of those commandments actually has to do with, you know, leading a sexually pure and decent life. You know, it says you should not commit adultery. 
you know, that, that kind of speaks to a sexual ethic for our lives. And we would definitely say that that means, you know, child molestation is out. You know, that, that that's a gift that is reserved for husband and wife in marriage. You know, and, uh, you know, and when you're outside of that, there's a problem. Is that problem so great that Jesus can't forgive it? No. No. If you truly... Now be careful. <laughs> be careful. Because when we put ourselves in, in, in a position where we're like, well, how much faith do you need to have in order, you know... Um, I think that God is a, a lot more ready to forgive than we are, which is kind of ironic because we're the ones that are you know doing the wrong things that really we we're the ones that really need the grace, you know, and uh, you know, and we find our sins to not be as bad as other people's, you know, and and I, well, I didn't do it; he did. So. Right? Exactly. Exactly. You know, and, and we do this all over the place. One of the things we read this week was he said, love your enemies. Yeah. He said, even sinners love their wife and their kids and yeah. their family. But I'm saying, love your enemies. But what got me at that point, and I never heard, read it before, in that way was even sinners do this. Well, we're all sinners. Yeah. Yeah, he's saying that there's kind of this natural logic, this law that's written on our hearts that even when we're pretty rotten people, most rotten people will recognize that they should love their kids. Right? You know, and, and, and yeah, even sinners know that. But I'm telling you that the love of God is even bigger than that. That it extends not just to your family, but even to people who would hate you and do you harm. It's a, it's a pretty radical thought. And, and, and I think it's a pretty good reflection of how radical Jesus' grace is. How much he's willing to forgive. So luckily we don't have to worry about those pedophiles or whatever. In a sense, yes. Us. I mean, it's not our problem. It's right. That's between them and their Savior. Yeah. Now, I do think that there's a sense that we do have to worry about them because... You know, as we love our neighbor as ourselves, that's, that's how Jesus summarizes commandments, right? Jesus says, you know, the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. If you're going to love those children, you're going to protect them from those victims. So it's not that we just kind of go, eh, it doesn't matter. And I'm not saying that's what you were saying. You know, but where, do, where does love play into all of that? Because I think sometimes we look at these things and we approach them from, I hate what he's doing and I need to stop that. Okay, how about if we love these people and love this guy enough 
to protect both of them from the destructive thing that he's doing. And that might mean that he needs to go to jail. He needs to be taken out of society to protect the children around him, but also to protect himself. It's a different model. You know, it's one that, that acts with compassion. You know, it doesn't mean that, you know, you're like, you know, soft on crime or whatever, but it has a different motivation to it. So, divide these into categories. How many categories? <laughs> uh, I see two. Oh. and everything else. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Creator <laughs> yeah. and created. Okay. Yeah. And, and this is really our first relationship with God. That we are creatures. We, use, we tend to use that word creatures of, you know, animals. You know, all the critters, you know. Uh, um, but really, when you get down to the, the basic meaning of that word, a creature is something that is created. And there is a creator, and then there are creatures. So our first relationship with God is the fact that he has made us. And uh, the Ten Commandments serve as a summary of how um, humans function in relationship with God. You know, So the way that the commandments break out, uh, you have... You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not misuse my name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Come to church. Hear his word. And then it gets into how do we relate to our neighbors, the people around us, who are also, by the way, creatures. You know, and so it starts with uh, parents. Um, you know, honor your father and your mother. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Because people need stuff. You know? I mean, sometimes people have more stuff. Well, we all have more stuff than we need. But, you know, we need stuff to live. God recognizes that. And out of love for him, shouldn't we protect our neighbor's things? Um, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't, don't slander people. Because people's reputations matter. In fact, when it comes down to it, don't even want other people's stuff. You know, don't, don't be envious of people when they have things that might be better than yours. You know, that's the coveting thing. You know, oh, they have better employees. I'm going to try to get them to come over here. Oh, you know, I mean, it even gets into the marriage, you know, husband or wife, you know, well, break them up and then maybe I can get him or her you know, um, you know they're animals they're, they're possessions I'm not even going to go there I'm not even going to think about it 
you know, because God has blessed them and, and, and I can thank God for his blessing in them just as he has blessed me differently because I can trust him for the things that I need for this life. Now, the, the commandments tend to function in three ways. And we, we summarize these as a curb, a mirror, and a guide. It, a curb? Curb, yeah. And, I'm, I'll, and I'll unpack this in just a second here. In all of them, though, they're, they're pointing us back to our Creator. Okay? What, whatever they're doing, they're always, you know, taking us back to our relationship with God. So, um, a curb. Uh now, when we use the word curb, we're usually thinking alongside of roads or in parking lots. Those big things that, you know, your tires hit them and go, ugh. As, as parking, I, I have kids who go to Stowe High School, and uh, one of the fundraisers for the speech and debate team is to direct traffic, like for the football games, for parking. And so I've, I've done that for the last several years. Um, and, and may have done it for the last time. Uh, <laughs> Because uh, my, my daughter's a senior, and my other younger two kids don't um, don't do speech and debate. Um, and uh, one day I was I was in the parking lot, and this girl pulls in, and she's pulling, and it's not because she, it just happens to be a girl. I'm not you know, saying girls can't drive or anything like that. Uh, and and, and uh, it's a stick shift, and I can tell it's a stick shift by the way that it's moving. Okay. Yep. It's that. <laughs> And, and she pulls into the, 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 the parking space and she just lets go of that clutch and hits the curb. The whole front of the car pops up and boom, you know, on the other side of it, it stalls, you know, which dad's sitting in the passenger seat and he's probably thinking, thank God it stalled. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, and, and he gets out and she's crying and, you know, and, and he's, God bless him. He was very calm. He's like, Go in, get ready. I'll take care of this. <laughs> so he was either very restrained because I'm done, or you know he's just generally a, a very gracious guy. When you hit the curb, it tells you don't go any further. And when you go further, bad things can happen. You know I don't know if there was damage to that car. You know, kind of would guess probably not. You know, but uh, you know he was able to back it out. And, you know. But sometimes when you cross the line, damage happens. And the creator knows what that damage is. And he says, no. You know, this is where you stop. Because I don't want you to damage yourself. And I don't want you to damage others. It's a curb. The uh, commandments also act as a mirror. So a, a big part of... Um, our lives is, as Christians is that we recognize our sin and we turn to, to Jesus for forgiveness. Well, how do you know what your sin is? Well, the commandments become a summary for us to look and to see ourselves in comparison to God's will. Now, the thing that is kind of cool but also a little bit unsettling about mirrors is that they show you exactly what's there. Um, for example, you two have no idea how much hair product I have in my hair in order to make it lay down. <laughs> but if you were to see me, 
a few hours ago when I got up, it's like, <laughs> my hair just stands on end. You know, by the end of the day, I mean, it, I mean, it's not that tall, obviously, but, uh, you know, that's what my hair does. You know, and so I get up in the morning and I put stuff in it and I comb it and I tame it. And, you know, but when I get up in the morning and I look in the mirror, it's like, whoa, there it is. You know, and, and, and so the mirror tells you the truth. The law tells us the truth about our, how we look spiritually, so to speak. How we're living in relationship with God and with our neighbor. And it tells us where we fall short. And it does that in a, a merciless way. It's just unflinching. You know, nope, this is what you've done. That's where you fell short there. That's where you went wrong there. And the whole purpose of that then is to drive us to Jesus to say, oh, I need this forgiveness. So curb, mirror, then it also acts as a guide. Um, when you read through the Psalms, Psalm 119 is a great example of this. Over and over again, it says, I love your law, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Let me walk in your ways. These, these are all sayings that are like, okay, here are your commands, and I actually want to do them. And this is part of the change that takes place in us where we move from fear to love and trust. That these commandments that are always accusing us, we begin to see that the reason that God gave them to us is because he loves us. And because I love God, and he's teaching me to love my neighbor, I love that he shows me how to do that. What that looks like. And so these commandments aren't necessarily just like this oppressive burden that's put on us because God's a cosmic killjoy. But they're loving words to teach us how to live in relationship with him, in relationship with one another, and to not hurt ourselves and, and one another. And as he works in our lives, that's, that becomes something that we desire. We don't want to hurt others. We begin to have compassion for other people. You know, and and there are other people, you know, this is this is wisdom that, you know, I think everybody to some degree has an aspect of this. Because God's it says in Romans that God's law is written in our hearts. You know, and, and we begin to see the wisdom of that and we desire that. You know, but the more that, that we trust in him the more and more that we begin to desire that. That he would lead us and teach us how he wants us to live, even when we find our desires conflicting with that. Does that make sense? So this relationship that we have with our, our creator, um, you know, it, it's one where we, we have accountability. You know, we're accountable to the one who made us. And he shows us, in a sense, what it's supposed to look like. These commandments, at the end of the day, I mean, they, re they reveal sin. Oh, I went too far. <laughs> what did I do? When you 
pounded on the table in your car. Oh, it moved. You bounced it. <laughs> ah. You're good. The curb did it. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, so the commandments reveal sin. And when you look at the way that... Um, So there's a rich tradition in the, in the Catholic Church. It's actually a very good tradition in some ways um, for confession, where you know they're required to go. The required is not so good, uh, but the, to talk directly to the priest about their sin and to confess that sin. Um, and uh, even before Luther was around, uh, there were catechisms, and they were largely written in order to prepare people for that moment when they would go into the confessional to speak to the priest. I don't know what sins I've committed. What, what, what do I, you know, well, you have to teach people what the sins are. And um, so a lot, of, a lot of catechisms were written with the, the, the classic seven deadly sins, you know, um, and those are supposed to be kind of opposite to the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians. Um, the numbers don't match up, so don't even try. Um, okay. So basically, it, it's, it's human wisdom. But, I mean, there's godly wisdom in it, too. You know, when, when you look at, at some of those, um, you can look in the Scriptures and say, yeah, that's gluttony is probably a bad thing. You know, sloth is a bad thing. Um, on the other hand... Uh, the commandments make a much better summary to teach us what sin is. And when Luther started to look at, you know, how do, how do we look at our relationship with God and how do, how do we know what we've done, you know, in, in relationship to him and what is his desire and his will for us, that's where he turned. But he wrote these in, in a way to prepare people for confession. You know, whether that is, you know, the private confession, and, and I will say, that we do private confession. Not a lot. It happens from time to time when somebody is just like really particularly bothered by something that they did. And so one of my um, vows that I took when I was ordained was never to reveal the sins of those who confess. You know, that, that's, that's part of my work, um, you know, is to hear that, not get freaked out, and speak God's forgiveness to deliver that forgiveness to them. And, uh, and, and there have been times that, that, I, that I've done that. Um, for the most part, we confess our sins as part of the worship service in kind of this more general way. You know, just generically, yep, I've done all of these things. But sometimes somebody comes in and they're like, you know, I did this. I had an old man come to me one time um, and he said that in the, in the 1940s, he was driving drunk, and he thinks he may have hit a guy. And he just kept that inside all of his lie, life. And he had this huge burden of guilt, which, rightfully so, if he actually did, he wasn't sure. You know, and he's like, and here I am. I've had this very blessed life. I've, I've got these beautiful grandchildren, and, and you know, and I, 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 I just don't know what to do. Well, I don't really see any reason to 
talk to the police because, I mean, at that point, it was almost 60 years ago or whatever. You know, and what? here's what I got. I've got Jesus' forgiveness for you. you know, if that, you know, was, you know, last week I was blind drunk and I think I hit a guy, that conversation's a bit different. Okay, maybe we need to investigate this and find out what's going on and maybe you need to take responsibility for your actions. However, I can tell you very clearly that your sins are forgiven. But there are some earthly consequences you might need to deal with. Different situations. Um, you know, and so um, we do private confession and absolution when somebody has something like that. Um, on the whole, it tends to be the public in, in, in the worship service. But the way that these are written is that they're written to prepare us for confession. So if you look at, like, even the second commandment, um, and I'm on page 13 in here if you want to take a look at it. Um, he writes it, he says, you know, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. What does this mean? We should fear and love God. It's, it's always that fear-love dynamic that he keeps coming back to so that we do not curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie, or deceive by his name. Don't do those things. And so, you know, as you're getting ready for worship, have I done those things? And notice that then it goes into, but call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. Now, there's still that, that confession part, you know, have I done what the commandment forbids? Have I done what it commands? There's a positive and a negative side to it. Um, however, this also matches with those three functions of the law. You know, we should fear, love, and trust in God so we don't curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie, or deceive by his name. That's a curb. But call upon in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. That's a guide. You put it all together and you look at that and you've got a mirror to reflect back to you. What have I done? And so you know, th this then becomes you know, that, that, that tool that Luther would use and that we use to help people to recognize their sin, to confess it in order to speak forgiveness to it. Because at the end of the day, that's the purpose of all of this. Doggone it. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. The purpose is to drive it to Jesus. The whole goal is to get you to the point where somebody, and I think that um, the pastor has a specific, that it's a pastor's specific job and duty to speak those words. Notice that I did not say that others cannot. You know, I think that you know when you're dealing with your your husband or with your wife, and they do wrong by you, because I can tell you that as a husband, I do wrong by my wife sometimes, and I have to say, I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? And she can say, I forgive you. And you know what? That counts. That's Jesus at work in her life to speak forgiveness to me you know it's my job as a pastor you know to speak that broadly to the congregation and and also in, in cases where you know 
you just did something and you didn't necessarily hurt a person that you need to reconcile with. You know, maybe what you did offends against God, but doesn't necessarily hurt another person. Well, I get to speak on God's behalf to tell you about how your sins are forgiven for Jesus' sake. That's kind of that's kind of what I do. That's my job. It's a pretty cool job. Any questions about any of this? Okay, so we're pretty much at time, and uh, I close with prayer, and you know, and, and think it through, and, and you know, if there are things that uh, questions that rise, feel free to you can you can either shoot me an email with them, or give me a call, or write them down and bring them to class next Saturday, and you know, we can discuss them there. Um, but uh, um, one more thing, you will notice that as you read through. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's related to all of the commandments. The catechism, those questions and answers, they dig into the implications of each and every one of them. And you're going to read those if you read through it. For what I want to accomplish, I, I want you to understand that when you get down to it, there's one commandment. No other gods. I'm a creature that lives in relationship to my creator. Now, these other things, they speak to that relationship. But at the end of the day, why should I honor my father and my mother? Because God is God. He's put me in relationship with them. He's given them to me as a gift in order to give me life. Is that enough? You know, don't kill people. You should not murder. Why not? Because God is God. And he cares about my life and the life of my neighbor. And he protects that life. You know, the sixth commandment. Now, this is the one that I think that our culture gets hung up with. You know, uh, you should not commit adultery. So the whole sexual ethic. Why should I lead a sexually pure and decent life? Because God is God. I should fear and love and trust in God. And then that speaks to, you know, what are appropriate relationships? You know, in, in, I'm not saying that the church has handled this perfectly. In fact, we haven't. Um, but to lovingly say, you know, God has a plan for our lives. And there is a design for us. And if we struggle with that, that's us but I can strive to live within you know, the design that he has for us, that he's revealed to us, and live in his mercy and live in his forgiveness. Um, and, and so I leave that to you know, the reading part uh, you know, to you to really kind of expound upon you know, some of those issues around um, sexual ethics, um, life issues, you know, and... and Believe me, it's not that I'm trying to like run away from them or anything like that. Um, but uh, you know, I think that you will have plenty in the catechism to kind of dig into that. And if we want to talk about it here in class, we can do that. But um, you know, ultimately, why? Because our Creator created us, and we live 
to fear, love, and trust in him. So, all right, let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that we could be here today and we pray for those who couldn't be with us. Um, we pray that your blessings on, on all of us and we ask that your spirit would be at work in our lives, that you would lead us and guide us into all truth, that your spirit would be upon us to open your word and, uh, and to help us to understand who you are, why you love us, maybe even just that you love us, and who Jesus is and how our sins are forgiven through him. And help us to fear, love, and trust in you above all things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.